0: Now, this is Richard Chambers with you on the Sunday show until 12 o'clock. We're turning our attention again to what's been a very turbulent week in the US. It started with more grieving and unrest over the police killings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. And then, of course, the horrific ambush and killing of five police officers in Dallas on Thursday night. We're joined now by Vernay Myers. She's an award-winning author and lawyer who has dedicated her life and her legal expertise to try and eradicate barriers such as race, and the deep-rooted divisions that clearly still exist in the U.S. Good morning to you, Verne.
1: Good morning.
0: Verne, i I'm sure the U.S., it's very divided and quite uneasy at this moment, this weekend, isn't it?
1: Yeah, actually, I don't know how much division there is, Mm. but I do know there is great sorrow and sadness, confusion bewilderment, you know, just on where we are in our country around issues of race and also around police and violence Mm. generally in our country.
0: I mean, we see what happened in Dallas. We also look at what happened in Louisiana and in Minnesota as well. And we see these videos and these reports of extreme incidents and losses of life. But the ordinary interactions and atmosphere within the black community then, I mean, how does this affect them? I mean, you'd wonder to some degree, because this is something which is definitely sort of seems to be proliferated across social media over the last couple of years, more and more of these these videos and these incidents. I mean, how has that affected people or what sort of conversations are taking place?
1: You know, it is so interesting to know whether, and it's hard to know whether, what is happening is just that we're now more aware of what has been happening all along, mm. or whether in fact we are seeing a spike in these incidents, right? So some people who live the life within the communities that we would say are over-policed are saying this is not new. Um, it, if you would to look at the, the history in, of our country of violence against black people, that also would not be new. What might be new is that more non-white people are aware of the experience that uh, people of color, black people, poor people um, have been experiencing for a long time. Mm. And so that's that's just one thing that we're we're just noticing. It's just that we are now, more of us are involved in this reality and more of us are saying this is not okay um, And I think that what may not come over the images is that this is a multi-generational multiracial multi-ethnic uh, movement of people saying we have to do better. It's not only of the black community and I think that's also a very positive development.
0: Mm. But when you, could, you think about it, I mean, you're, you're obviously at least referring to at least one of the groups which just does that, of course, is Black Lives Matter, which is a group you associate yourself yes. with. There's been some criticism of Black Lives Matter in the, the lead up to Thursday and since the incident in Dallas and people like Donald Trump will come out and, and criticise it. I think I saw Rush Limbaugh described it as a terrorist group even. I mean, how does Black Lives Matter, I mean, how much of a setback was what happened in Dallas to that? Because there are some white people in America who have a deep fear of Black Lives Matter for whatever reason.
1: Yeah. The, for whatever reason though, is really important. Mm, of course. <laughs> right? Because really all Black Lives Matters is saying is that our lives matter too. And that it apparently that has not been a focus of so much not just the police, but all sorts of ways in which black communities have been disinvested in, or sort of has dealt with so much discrimination and marginalization. And so I don't think that people need to be afraid. I think that what people need to do is be awake to how the ways in which the country is not fulfilling its promise with regard to certain groups of people. Because mm-hmm. I think once you start to see what it looks like on the housing front, on the education front, on the criminal justice front, you start to want to be part of making these things right. Because that's that. those are our, our ideals, that there is this is a country of equity and equality. And first of all, we don't really listen to Donald Trump because we don't think that he's speaking anything other than how to uh, foment fear Mm -hmm. so as to create isolation and cause people not to see their common humanity. So he's not really, I don't think worth speaking too much about, but I do know that people, it is not a militant. In fact, if you think about how incredibly obedient and how completely democratic this movement is, right? Mm. it All it does is it speaks, it writes, it protests, it stands up. It doesn't do anything other than speak the truth on behalf of America's ideals and that everybody should want to embrace.
0: And the point you made there about criminal justice and how that seems to be stacked against minorities as well, that's something, I mean, which we've, we've seen going back to Rodney King in L.A. and even beyond. I mean, you, you think about how incarceration works in the U.S. and the militarization of police as well. But it works both ways as well, because you see these shootings take place and you, just, you hear what the police officers involved when they shoot unarmed black teenagers, for example, and the likes. When this happens, they point to fear that they felt afraid. Why is there yeah. that fear? It, it seems yeah. strange that there would even be that fear in the first place.
1: Well, we don't have enough time, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure, to go through all the all the sort of components of the fear. But partly it's because for a very long time, forever in America, um, black people have been uh, demonized and they have been misunderstood. And they have been um, and there was a situation set up with so much cruelty that I think the imagination is. That when you treat a group of people with such cruelty, they will want to hurt you. And what is mm. amazing about the black community is that we don't and that, in fact, in many ways, the violence goes inward. All of the, the stress and the trauma that the black community has suffered in this country really doesn't actually add up to black people going out and killing or hurting white people. Um, So I think the fear is something that is in the imagination. Mm. However, we do also know that from unconscious bias studies, that if you have uh, negative stereotypes and you may not even know you have them, they are actually the better predictors of your behavior than your conscious bias or your explicit views. Like some people I think really do have very positive mm-hmm. attitudes, but those are their explicit attitudes towards black people. But then in so many years of negative stereotypes, being inundated with those in so many ways um, and misinformed and not a lot of experience with black people often that I think police st- are regular human beings and they have these biases. I mean, there are tests that yeah. show over and over again. That white people, despite what their explicit views are, nevertheless show up as having explicit negative views against black people.
0: And, Vernet, I'm just wondering just how you progress from this. I mean, how does the black community move on from this? And, and like, I mean, thinking even about what, because you look at some of the people who have been killed, and they were doing things like selling CDs outside of shops. You think about Trayvon Martin, he was killed wearing a hoodie. What do you say? What do parents say to their children? And what do you do when you're confronted with these situations then? If this can happen even for really just minor or completely just nothing offences, how do you progress this conversation and try to make it better?
1: Well, you know, I have two things that I've been thinking about what to tell children. I think it's what to tell black children and then what to tell non-black children, right? So what to tell black children is to believe, to love, to stay connected, to resist fear and then there's some practical things right which is to say people may not see you for who you are. They may clump you and have a negative presumption about you. This is not something that you should internalize, but it is something that you will need to navigate. Mm. And what that may mean is that you have to be your very best, most focused, you know, obedient self when you are speaking with a police officer. But some of these things, like I think that some of these things that we see are just rogue police officers. Like, it's both a culture and an individual problem. Like, So the individual is having a problem and something within the culture that that individual is operating in is not offsetting the problem. So some people would say, oh, it was just a matter of time and, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's just sort of like it's amazing it didn't happen before. But I actually want to go in the other direction. I want to go in the direction of people seeing each other as humans and wanting to preserve life and recognizing that the violence doesn't and, and nothing in uh, America's history would suggest that the violence actually does get us to a, a better place or certainly not to freedom or protection or safety so I think that we're looking at how to talk to each other and how to see each other as real humans and noticing that we have a common humanity and a common fate. We've got to figure out this together. Mm. And I think that's what we tell our children as well. I think we also have to tell non-black children that what is happening is unacceptable and they must be part of making it better. I think they, if they just look on the news or they just look without having full a full history, they may presume that black people are not moral or bright or capable or whatever, especially because there is a lot of poverty mm. that relates with race in this country. They have to understand the history of the country and they have to be on the right side of the country's history. And I think that requires a direct, intentional conversation with kids who are privileged and kids who are not black.
0: At the very least, Verne, I think at times like these they call for leadership. I just wanted to get your thoughts before we wrap up just on, on yeah. where that leadership comes from. I mean, you have President Barack Obama and he, he has, he's expected to sort of speak for the pain of minorities who are in these situations. But he's also, of course, he is the authority. He has to speak for um, yes. for, for law enforcement as well. Where does the leadership need to come from? Is that need to come from some, somewhere within the black community? Is it cultural representatives, athletes, and musicians as well? Where does the leadership come from at this time?
1: I think you've said it all, right? I mean, we are all leaders. It doesn't, we don't need, it is important for our president to speak up. And I think he has done an, a really amazing job trying to be both the the president of all and also um, recognizing his own black identity and the identity of his children and his nieces and all of that. But quite frankly, since the very beginning of President Obama's candidacies, he said that we have to be the change we want to see in the world and we know that is true and every one of us has some sphere of influence even if it's just in our own household where we can lead in a way that is full of love and grace and connection and affirming each other's humanity because quite frankly none of the change that we need to happen which is deep down is going to happen by just someone standing on on a platform in front of a lectern saying we must do better. We have to find that in ourselves. And some of us have are real influencers because of the positions that we're in. And I'm so grateful that the athletes and the movie stars and Jesse Williams and LeBron James, I am so grateful for them speaking out because they do have a lot of influence. But I think it's also important for every mother, for, for every shopkeeper, for Everybody who can lead from their best selves to do that right now, there's never been a better time for us to be courageous, to speak up, to when you see something that's wrong, to say something about it. Uh, White people can do an Mm. enormous amount. They do not need to feel guilty. Most individual white people did not create the situation we're in, but they could do something to change that situation for the better. Okay,
0: well, it's going to be a deep and it's going to be a hard conversation at times, I'm sure, over the months ahead. We do appreciate you taking the time to talk with us so early in the morning. You can hear and read more from Vernay at Vernaymyers.com. But for now, Vernay, thank you very much for speaking with us.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
0: Now we're going to stay with this story now. We're joined on the line by Professor Charles Gallagher. He's the chair of the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at LaSalle University in the US. Charles, these stories from Louisiana, from Minnesota, and of course, then from Dallas as well, they all point to, they'll all be written into the story of race relations in the United States. I mean, how does this stack up to that history of race relations in the US?
2: Yeah, I think it's a very unique time in American history. And And really much of what it comes down to is the ability to record um, what are basically the shootings of black men by by the police. Uh, In 2016, 136 African-Americans were killed by the police and increasingly they're chronicled on people's iPhones and they become part of social media. And and what's happened is that this has basically uh, pushed forward a social movement Mm. in the guise of Black Lives Matter.
0: We look back to 2008 and we saw the election of President Barack Obama. We thought that that was a new era for race relations in the United States. I mean, I think it was probably almost a convenient thing, was it, for, for Americans to believe that this was a new chapter and that, I mean, that, that people didn't see colour as much as they did. But it was were people misguided in thinking that?
2: No, I think absolutely. I think that colour blindness became a narrative to say that race relations where all the issues of race relations have been addressed. And and, and white America could point to the White House and say, hey, we have a black president, therefore, racism, institutional racism is a thing of the past. Um, And in fact, if you look just empirical record, we're more segregated today in the United States than we were 30 years ago. Our schools are more segregated. If you look at wealth accumulation among black and Latinos, it's lower than it was 30 years ago. If you look at criminal justice, our criminal jails are filled with black and brown men for typically low-level drug offenses. So it was a convenient rhetorical tool to say that the system works self-correcting and we have moved we have transcended to a post-race society which is utter nonsense Mm.
0: and i just wanted to focus in on that criminal justice element because i'm fascinated by this i mean you you wonder why things weren't changed after the 1960s even it seems that this was something that it almost became convenient for america to just sweep under the rug and says well we're progressing and we're doing it but things actually probably changed for the worse then in, in how criminal justice dealt with minorities then
2: well, what happened was that we had uh, a kind of law and order movement once again in the 1980s, and we had draconian measures put in place. Three strikes are out, mandatory minimums, um, judges had no discretion at all when it came to drug cases, and we had what was the growth of the, the, the prison industrial complex, mm. and we have gone – if you just follow the numbers over the last 30 years – the amount of people in prison has skyrocketed at a time when crime has gone down. That is, that is hard crime. So what we created was just another way to control the black population. It it seems sick and cynical, but it is really no different than convict labor programs or the way we control people during Jim Crow. And unfortunately that this was um, palatable to many Americans, you lock them up, put them away. And, um, Unfortunately, there's been a backlash and that's where we are now.
0: Mm. And do you fear, I mean, I was listening to Donald Trump's statement after Dallas and he was thinking about taking back control of the streets and bringing back law and order. That really feeds into that now. So, I mean, are you, is there a fear there that this is what's going to happen again, that these calls for justice and for, for law and order are going to supersede what is a very real and alive issue in the United States of that institutional racism?
2: I think absolutely that's the case. And I think people like Donald Trump are the worst thing imaginable for the American politic. Um, his rhetoric, and let's, let's go back with Donald Trump, wants to build a wall, wants to basically send all Muslims out of the country. Um, the man has a racist past in how he has hired people. Um, this is a person that has done nothing but inflame uh, race relations. He's thrown fire onto race relations and the issues. Um, so, And he gets away with it. And unfortunately, Donald Trump does speak for a subpopulation Of the United States and when he says law and order it's really dog whistle politics when you say law and order everybody knows what he's really talking about he's really been talking about controlling blacks controlling Latinos so this is this is a step back and and and, you know today in the papers they're saying maybe this is a time for us to come together but what happens in situations like this in the United States typically is people don't come together they run out and buy more guns Mm. and this is the sick sad part you know I love my country but we have some sick fascination with owning guns as a way to solve all social ills. Mm.
0: And I'm just thinking about the statement made by the Dallas Police Commissioner saying that the suspect involved says that he wanted to go out and kill white people and you hear about the backlash. I mean, this idea of, of, of racial conflict, this is something, I mean, this is the, the conversation which is happening. It, it's, 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 it seems baffling this is happening now in, in 21st century America.
2: Right. Well, he said he wanted to kill white people, especially white police mm. officers. I think what's important to not lose sight of is this man was sick. Yeah. Um, he had he was going to be um, he had a restraining order from when he was in the army. Um, and what normal person is stockpiling uh, bombs in their in their mother's house? He's living with his mother. Um, but this is gets to another problem in the United States. If you if you have a mental health issue, you can still buy an AR-15. Tell me a country, a civilized Mm. Western nation, where you can buy, you can walk in, and you can buy an automatic weapon. It's it's in the United States. It's it's comical. It's it's harder to buy a dog or a kitten than it is to buy an AR-15. And
0: why, Charles? I mean, Charles, Barack Obama came out afterwards, and he pointed again after Dallas to to gun control, and there was a huge backlash immediately after it. Why is this that every time this happens, that somebody points out the obvious question about gun ownership? That, there was just a huge yeah. backlash about it. I mean, why, why can't a mature conversation be had about it?
2: Well, it's simply, I would just say, the simple answer is two things. Spineless politicians that are being given money by the NRA, the National Rifle Association. It is a very deep-pocketed um, political action committee that basically can sway elections, especially at the local and state level. So if you come out for, I mean, I'm not talking about banning guns, just background checks. Um, requiring licensing, requiring people to take a class. This is the idea for the NRA. It's the slippery slope. That if you will do one thing, if you, there was a big to do that the NRA went ballistic because someone had suggested that civilians shouldn't be able to buy armor piercing bullets. What civilian would have any use for an armor piercing? It's for the military. But this became an issue, and of course the the bill went away because the NRA was able to basically position itself that they say, if you basically go against us, we will give you a bad rating, a grade, and they will basically fund other people that are more right wing on guns in the next election. So we are held hostage, and I should say that this is a minority. The NRA does not reflect the Hunters of the United States, it's a big country. Hunting is part of culture. People hunt deer and they they cut up their deer and they freeze it and they, they live in rural communities as part of culture. These folks want sensible gun control, and even their voices basically are drowned out by the amount of money the NRA can spend on these policies.
0: Mm. And I actually, just on the point of the NRA there, I mean, one of the, the two men who, were, who was killed over the weekend before Dallas was a, a concealed carry owner, and I, I don't see anything coming out um, from all these people who always scream about protecting gun ownership, about his, how his rights should have been protected.
2: Well, they won't, and, and they won't because what will happen is that, you know, there's this whole conversation about... Um, if if uh, if someone's carrying the you know, open carry laws, if someone's open carrying and they're white or black, are they treated differently? Now, is, 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 is even the Second Amendment racialized? Mm. Right, your right to carry a gun, but you have less of a right to carry a gun if you're black. So this becomes the next issue people are talking about. Well, what does it mean when you see a black man walking down the street with a shotgun, you know, draped around his shoulder, which is legal, mm. you know, in in, in Texas? So the, the idea is that one is. What is public enemy number one? If you're black, and and if you're white, um, you're this you're this person who's basically embracing the founding fathers. So th- these narratives get completely jaded by race, and th- unfortunately, the history of the United States is to, to to privilege a narrative, the white narrative, over the black narrative.
0: Uh, and when it comes then to that relate that that that, that narrative, then I mean. So much has been said in the past and even since, since Rodney King and the L.A. in the 90s about in, in, cultural, in, in cultural aspects like in film and in music about the relationships between black America and the police and police's treatment of black Americans. This is going to set all this back again, isn't it? It's hard to see where the trust is going to be rebuilt there.
2: It's extremely difficult. And, you know, let's be honest, police officers have... A very difficult job. You never know who is crazy. You don't know who has a gun, but but you know, we look at implicit bias research and this is a black officers as well. That that if you're if you're young and you're a black male, you are seen as a criminal unless you can prove otherwise. That's the starting point for a lot of people. And it, you know, again, police officers are no different than the general population. You know, granted they have training, but you know, people were human, I and mean, everybody has stereotypes. And these stereotypes come into play, especially during split second decisions and and this is going to do nothing I, I, you watch if we talk a week from now gun sales will spike again you know sandy hook happened columbine happened aurora happened and everyone said oh this is going to it's going to be new all these children were killed all these innocents were killed we're going to get some kind of handgun control mm. it didn't happen it didn't happen in charleston at the church um it didn't happen in orlando was most recently 29 people so we had this desire by basically the overwhelming majority of americans to have sensible gun control and it's thwarted every time by a small yet powerful political Mm. action committee
0: and on that political action i mean you 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 just you just went through everything all these mass shootings which happened in recent years and everybody always remembers barack obama's statements after them all and they all so similar and there's always this call for action but it goes nowhere i mean where do you see things going down the line of course there's an election in november Clearly nothing's going to happen in the short term. You have a lame duck president, you have a Republican Congress. But even Hillary Clinton, I mean, she's not particularly trusted by a lot of the people within Black Lives Matter, and they'd see things about incarceration as being, you know, punitive towards black Americans, even when her husband was president in the 90s.
2: Yeah, there's a trust issue with with Hillary, no question about it. But if you it's funny that there's a new meaning of the 1% in the United States, not in terms of economics, but if you look at polling data... Um, 1% of people that define as racial minorities have a favorable impression of of Trump. So the default candidate is going to be for black America, Latino America, is going to be Hillary Clinton. And she has sadly been, I think, silent on this. Um, uh, uh, President Obama has tried to move legislation forward. but Is she
0: afraid? Is she afraid of backlash if she steps too far into this? Is she afraid of backlash from from white Americans or middle America? Uh,
2: I don't think it's that I just think that she's so calculating Mm. this is a person that was born thinking that she should be president so every single action she takes is vetted it's focus grouped so she's extremely cautious and she has now with what happened with Benghazi there's a lot of trust issues because she has been loose with
0: which but is so, that the sort of leader America needs, that it is somebody who's so calculated and, and just almost not human in these instances where she can't come out and say, you know, speak for the, the hurt which has been felt by Americans across the country?
2: Right. You're absolutely right. But what is the alternative? The alternative is mm. Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is, you know, I, maybe I hope I'm, I'm correct, but he is not going to be the president of the United States. If you look at every constituency, yeah, so he's lost the Latino vote with, right, the, the, with the wall. And forget Muslims, forget Jews, forget blacks. Forget liberal Democrats, 70% of women don't like Donald Trump. So it's the numbers, it's impossible. And something catastrophic happens. Hillary Clinton is going to be the president of the United States of America. And the, the reality is that nowhere, I mean, think in American history. This is a woman who was in the White House for eight years. She was a senator from one of those powerful states in the union. And she was um, a secretary of state. There's, there's really no one that has been more qualified to be president. The problem is she seems like an automaton. She seems like the person who was always calculating to be president of her class in high school. So she has to get over it. But I think deep down that I think that she does empathize with the black community. I think that she is thoughtful about these issues. Mm -hmm. I think she is progressive. Um, And I hope that comes out when she's in the White House. Well, I'm
0: sure it's going to become a feature of the race as we get closer to November and perhaps it will be if she does end up in the White House, might become a feature of her presidency, but we'll leave it at that. Uh, that's Professor Charles Gallagher, Chair of the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at La Salle University in the US. Charles, thank you very much uh, for pleasure. talking to us this Good morning.